The Restoration and Empowerment for Social Transition Center is a Peel Region nonprofit organization serving BIPOC youth who are either experiencing or are at risk of experiencing homelessness, supporting them to change their story, discover new possibilities, and shelter dignity. This podcast, Homelessness and Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks, is an uncensored discussion of content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Personal discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Homelessness in Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks, a podcast discussing youth homelessness in our communities while elevating the voices of those with lived experience and the people on the front lines fighting against it. In this episode, we discuss the intricate nature of substance use in Peel, as well as how poverty and homelessness intertwine with it, and how harm reduction, or the implementation of public health policies and services to mitigate physical and social harm associated with human behaviors like substance use, play a significant and important role in returning a sense of agency to a highly stigmatized population of Peel. I'm Maya Moniz, your host for this episode, and today I sit with Adam Chalcraft, the Harm Reduction Supervisor at Moyo, Health and Community Services. Moya provides services relating to health promotion, as well as educational, social, and support services for those living with, impacted by, and at risk of HIV. Adam is an active advocate for harm reduction in Peel. In addition to his work with Moyo, he is a co-founder and chair of the Peel Harm Reduction Committee and contributes to Peel's opiate strategy. He joins me here today to talk about Peel's drug crisis and how it relates to homelessness, as well as to explain the importance of harm reduction as a means to help people who use drugs across Peel. Hello, Adam. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. To get us started, can you please introduce yourself and your connection to the topic of harm reduction in Peel? Sure. Yeah. Um, again, yeah, my name is Adam Chelcraft, and uh, I use he, him pronouns, and I uh, manage the harm reduction program at Moyo Health and Community Services. Yeah, I've been with Moyo. They used to be called the PLHIV AIDS Network, but I've been with the organization for, it'll be 10 years in um, June. So I've been doing harm reduction work in Peel for the last decade and um, was doing it in Toronto for a little bit before then. Yeah, I guess uh, how I, I came to be in this work is, you know, I'm a substance user myself and have always sort of, I guess, since being a teenager, like run in those circles and um, have seen, you know, the, the different impacts and stuff that, that, uh, that can come with that. And obviously depending on people's social locations as well, but, um, and I've al- always been somebody who's been like an, an anti-poverty activist and anti-racist activist and all of these other things that seem to um, intersect with substance use and and for me harm reduction is a passion of mine because it intersects with all of these other social issues in a very unique way and uh and i feel like for me that's where i'm able to i guess try to make some kind of a a difference in whatever way that's possible (laughs) well I personally would like to thank you for the work you do. I think discussing, you know, drug use and harm reduction in Peel, because it's honestly a bit of a growing epidemic, I think it's really important. And I think the work that you are doing and that Moyo is doing and that adjacent actors are doing, I think is it's really, really important. And to a certain extent, I wonder sometimes if it's kind of underappreciated or not as seen as it should be. So formally, I would like to say thank you. And I'm sure I'll say it again, but thank you. (laughs) 
Oh no, I, I mean, thank thank you for you know helping to promote uh, harm reduction and other important issues um, in the region. I think a lot of this is that people don't understand some of these things to be able to like do something about it, or at least not block efforts to do something about it. So um, yeah, we're all you know I think we're all all working together to try to make feel better. Thank you. Well, continuing our quest of knowledge, can you tell us a little more about your organization, Moyo, and its harm reduction programs? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, Moyo is a uh, aid service organization, or ASO. Um, so our mandate is basically to work with people who are uh, either living with or affected by HIV. And our programs at Moyo are, are funded based on what are known as priority populations. Um, and those are determined by, I guess, the stats in terms of like who is most vulnerable or at risk of, uh, of contracting HIV. And each program area in Moyo is sort of geared at a specific priority population. So we, we work with um, specifically with women, with um, uh, African Caribbean and Black communities, the 2SLGBTQ plus community, uh, people who are living with HIV, and uh, my program works with uh, people who use drugs. Um, so a little bit more about my program. So it, when I started, it was just it was just me, <laughs> and uh, we've been able to fortunately um, expand over the the last number of years. And so there's sort of two main components of of the harm reduction program at Moyo. One is the sort of client facing or services, so our outreach team. Uh, so we have uh, a number of outreach workers and um, and peers, so people with lived or living experience of uh, of substance use that you know go out into community and um, try to connect with people who use drugs and be able to provide them with access to harm reduction supplies, like safer substance use supplies, basically whether that's uh, needles or um, crack or meth pipes, um, naloxone kits, se sexual health supplies, anything like that. Uh, we provide trainings on how to use those things effectively um, and just trainings or workshops or information and education on anything sort of related to substance use and sexual health. Provide counseling, uh, non-clinical harm reduction-based counseling. We help connect people to other services through referrals. We run groups, um, all of those sorts of things. And then we also do uh, service provider trainings and workshops and events um, to try to I guess, increase the capacity of other service providers in the region uh, to be able to work more effectively from a harm reduction perspective. And then the other piece of the program is the community development work. So we're the, uh, the lead agency for the Peel Integrated Drug Strategy, uh, as well as the Peel Harm Reduction Committee. We also sit on the uh, Drug Strategy Network of Ontario and house the coordinator position for that. Uh, and then sit at a, a number of, of other tables like the Peel Alliance to End Homelessness. And so that most of that work is is sort of centered around, oh, and participating in the region's opiate strategy and, you know, other other things like that. So basically at that level, we're sort of trying to work with key stakeholders in the region around uh, issues either directly or, or that are linked to uh, harm reduction or substance use with other key stakeholders to try to reduce uh, substance use related harms across the region through yeah the drug strategy work through sharing information through advocating for policy change or just figuring out how to reorient ourselves collectively to provide better service 
And that work also includes, we have a, um, a panel of uh, a lived experience panel that we set up called the Peel Drug Users Advisory Panel for the drug strategy, made up of 12 individuals that identify as, as you know, being, uh, being substance users that can inform all of the work that we're doing so that, you know, everything that we're doing is being informed by people who use drugs um, to make sure that we're actually going about it in a way that makes sense to people who would potentially be accessing the services. And that happens within our, my, you know, my outreach program too. We get feedback from, from PDAP on how we can improve our own services. So um, at the core of our work, we try to center uh, the voices of people who use drugs um, in everything we do where we can. So it sounds a little bit like a bit of like a mix of advocacy, a mix of service providing, and a mix of getting the voices of lived experience to inform policy change. Yeah, I think, you know, substance use is such a complex issue. And there's, you know, there's things that need to happen in order to, you know, reduce drug-related harms at an individual level, you know, when we're meeting with people who use drugs. But a lot of the harms that we that we can identify that are related to substance use are actually more of a direct result of policies and laws and other other sort of higher level things that impact people um, and increase the risks and harms associated with substance use. So for us, um, you know, we can't, you can't really make a difference without addressing sort of all of those things, like the immediate needs on the ground of people, um, but then also trying to do something about the things that are causing those, those very problems to begin with. Mm, okay. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I personally am a big proponent of meeting people where they're at because if they're going through something, you can do a little something as well to make their life a little bit easier. But then they're they're the people who are in the thick of it. They are the people who know what they're talking about, know what they need to see, know where they are struggling. So that said, I think that's really that's a really important perspective to have and to incorporate, especially in your policy or in your advocacy for policy changes and things. So all of that said, what are you hoping to get out of our conversation today? Well, I mean, uh, I think harm reduction, harm reduction is something that's misunderstood. And I think that even substance use is something that's um, very much misunderstood and heavily stigmatized. And it's that stigma that really results in the harms that we see um, associated with substance use. And to be able to try to address some of those things um, is, is, I think, really helpful because I think at the end of the day, the, the resources that are needed to deal with these issues, uh, a lot of that stuff doesn't end up happening because there is a lack of um, greater public support around these things because I think they're very misunderstood. And I think that comes through the criminalization of substance use and the people who use substances. That is what causes the stigma in the first place. Um, once someone's criminalized, they're immediately stigmatized. And people think that drug use in and of itself is is what's harmful and that people are just making bad choices or something like that. But when you're criminalized, you have to hide what you're doing to not get caught, which makes using so much more dangerous the drug supply, when it's criminalized, then production uh, and distribution of substances is unregulated and is coming from criminal cartels that are very violent, especially in the home production countries. So you've created a whole issue there. People are less likely to call for help. 
uh, whether that's when an overdose is happening, uh, if they think they're going to get arrested, people are treated poorly when they try to access healthcare services, and there's just a risk of admitting that you're a substance user. So people are less likely to, to reach out for help. People are having to use in unsafe spaces. People are using alone. Um, and all of these things, you know, contribute to the massive increases in deaths that we've been seeing over the, the last number of years. And when we look at the history of criminalization, when you look at where these laws originated, um, they're largely based not in public health measures, but in racism, directly seeking to target certain groups of people, uh, mainly people of color, with an excuse to disrupt those communities, arrest those communities. And, and that's really the history of where these laws come from. Not to mention the complexities of how the drug trade itself functions uh, with like large banks laundering money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's a very complex thing. And, and to me, the drug war is one of the major institutional factors that contribute to institutional racism and, and how it's actually carried out on the ground. Um, when we're seeing all this police violence uh, against people of color, it's, it's largely uh, with the excuse of the war on drugs. And when we look at our incarceration rates and stop and frisk programs and all of these things, they feed back into this war on drugs and the people that are disproportionately affected are, are typically people of color. So yeah, I think these are, are things that are really important to talk about and to really alleviate some of the misconceptions around harm reduction. Speaking a little bit to the war on drugs, but more so, you know, from a government level and a systemic level, but also from a community level, I wanted to ask you, what is the current state of illicit drug use in Peel? I mean, broadly, broadly speaking, uh, Peel, like I think most places, if you were to say, like, what's the most popular substances that people are using, um, they would be alcohol and uh, alcohol, tobacco and cannabis would be used by a, a much broader sector of the population. I mean, most of the folks that we work with are using illicit substances as well as maybe some of those legal substances. But I, I think, you know, we've been heavily focused, I would say, on the opiate epidemic. And what we've been seeing over the last number of years was folks who used opiates, typically, you know, things like heroin. A number of years ago, we started seeing heroin and other opiates being cut with fentanyl. And at first, so it was someone's substance of choice being cut with another substance. And very quickly, that shifted to fentanyl itself being basically more or less the only option. And, and that's what people are, are using in terms of opiates. But we're seeing, you know, the, the supply of fentanyl that's coming in is a constantly shifting concoction of, of different analogs of fentanyl um, and carfentanyl and other, you know, other things. We've been seeing in the last couple of years, benzodiazepines being cut into the fentanyl supply, which is uh, really complicating things and um, increasing the risks of complex, complex overdoses where someone may not gain consciousness again for a while, even after receiving naloxone. The naloxone will have them breathing again, but they'll stay unconscious for sometimes hours and hours. And we're starting to see like symptoms of, of benzodiazepine withdrawal as well if the supply is shifting. Uh, we've been seeing increases over the last number of years uh, in crystal meth use as well. It, really, in a very short time, the, the nature of the drug supply just very rapidly shifted from, from heroin to fentanyl, which you know, coincides with the dramatic increase in, uh, 
in overdose deaths, not just in Peel, but across the country. Mm, Okay. I think I have a bit of a follow-up as well. How might COVID-19 have contributed to the current state of things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that added complexities into an already complex situation. So, you know, with, with fentanyl, I should probably have said before too, because fentanyl is so much stronger than heroin, it means that it packs easier. You can, uh, in terms of transportation or smuggling, it's much easier to smuggle fentanyl in because you can bring, you know, if you're filling up the same truck, that truck full of fentanyl is going to go a lot further than heroin. Heroin's bulkier. So, I mean, just for economics, this is why, you know, drug trends shift as well. It's the the economics of supply and demand. It follows the same principles as any other business. And being able to cut costs and increase profits is, you know, is the same And so fentanyl, in that sense, makes economic sense from a producer and distributor perspective. Uh, What we saw with COVID-19 is more at the beginning of the, the pandemic when things were more fully locked down was that there were supply chain issues, which seemed to result in more tainted supply, like whatever was here already had to be cut further because you may not be able to get another shipment for a bit. Or uh, what we've also seen is because of the social distancing measures that were put into place, it became more difficult for people to not use alone, which obviously puts them at much higher risk of of something bad happening in terms of overdose. If there's no one there to respond, then you're in a very, very dangerous situation. And and one of the, you know, the things that we tell people the most is make sure you're not using alone and that the person you're with has naloxone and is willing to respond. You know, so that became problematic. A lot of uh, services across not just Peel, but everywhere were restricted um, in what they were able to do. A lot of in-person services um, had to be put on hold because of uh, pandemic restrictions. Um, So it it made it very difficult, I think, for people to access services. And I think agencies did a pretty good job of, of trying to pivot as best as possible under the circumstances, but it still created, I think, a lot of hardships for, for folks. We've been seeing housing issues, um, people, you know, losing their housing, having trouble finding housing. It's created a number of, of uh, unique barriers for people, for sure. Even even overdose response, where normally you're supposed to give like rescue breaths, the mandate for that shifted to chest compressions because of COVID-19. So it really did have, a, I think, a significant impact. And, and we definitely saw an increase in overdose deaths throughout the pandemic. And that's really unfortunate too, especially, you know, with the way that COVID-19 really did kind of change a lot of facets of our everyday lives. But then on top of that too, just the way we kind of respond to not only trauma, but respond to crises. Yeah, exactly what you just said about the shifting mandate from rescue breaths to just solely chest compressions. You also mentioned as well, the kind of growing housing crisis that occurred during COVID-19 and is honestly still ongoing. REST as an organization does work primarily with homelessness. We work within the issue of youth homelessness, but we do have a stake and are concerned with homelessness and Peel as a blanket statement. So I definitely see how COVID-19 complicated the issue further. Not only complicated it through the things I've already mentioned, but complicated it in the sense of the collective response of actors within Peel had to lessen because of COVID-19, and that probably perpetuated a significant number of issues. 
Yeah, I think, you know, everyone was strained by it. And I mean, most of the work we're doing is to try to bridge connection with people, you know, who could be otherwise isolated. And obviously, the <laughs> the mandates um, were to isolate, right? So I think the same is true for the general population. I think, you know, there, we were seeing increases in people having, you know, mental health distresses and issues because of these mandates, you know, and, and these are, you know, obvious side effects of these health mandates or unintentional consequences of some of these mandates that were to protect something over here, but there's obviously going to be other repercussions elsewhere. And, uh, you know, like I said, I think with, with the resources that, <laughs> that we had, I think, I think Peel was able to sort of pivot. It took a little time, I think, for people to get used to some of the newer ways of doing things. But I think overall, most folks have done a, a pretty good job with the resources that they've had available to do what we've been able to do in, during the course of the pandemic. That is reassuring to hear that, at least by now, like the pivot has been mostly successful and we've been able to adapt. I guess kind of on a systemic level and on a personal level, in what ways does drug use impact or contribute to homelessness? Yeah, I mean, this is a really complicated issue. And I think I think it can't be separated from talking about poverty more broadly and and systems that create poverty. We live in a in a capitalist system, and unfortunately, that system, because of unequitable and unequal uh, wealth distribution and resource distribution, that is inevitably going to leave percentages of the population in poverty. Which, uh, and that poverty also, you know, when we're speaking about things like racism, sexual identity, gender identity, all of these things, you know, poverty impacts different groups of people in different ways. So I, I think poverty in general is is a, is a major problem and has, you know, major negative effects on on people's health and well-being and and sense of self and 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 opportunity opportunities and all of these other things and creates these added stressors on somebody and mm-hmm. and someone's economic capacity will also determine what what support or health access points they have available to them right you know drug use isn't just happening amongst folks who are homeless or, or folks who may be poor i mean drug use is happening across every socioeconomic level but the the policy so like you know even just like the the criminalization of substance use we don't see stop and frisk programs on bay street right and even though we know a lot of the people in those big tall office buildings are also using drugs but they're not affected in the same way by the legal structures um, if they do need help or need some support folks with money are able to access treatment supports if that's where they want to go a lot more easily than someone who doesn't have those resources so the impacts of substance use are different amongst different socioeconomic groups. And in terms of, you know, homelessness, so for example, if someone has a record, um, if they've been caught for possession or for, you know, um, survival dealing or, or any other thing, that can make it very, very difficult for them to gain meaningful employment, which will obviously impact their ability to get stable housing. Um, if a if you're a renter and your landlord thinks you might be using illegal drugs in their property, uh, they can evict you for that. Um, or even just before, you know, if you're looking to rent, if you're perceived 
to be a substance user by that landlord. Uh, they may not rent to you. It's the stigma just that people may get even from service providers that they may be trying to access supports from uh, may prevent them from accessing, you know, help in securing or maintaining housing, depending on the situation. Yeah, there's it's a very complicated thing. And I also want to distinguish between, I guess, different types of substance use, right? So a lot of people, most people are drug users. So, you know, caffeine's a drug, uh, nicotine's a drug, sugar's a drug, you know, alcohol. You know, the vast majority of the adult population in Canada do use substances because they like the way it makes them feel or there's some perceived benefit to doing so. And then when we talk about illegal drugs too, um, there's a lot of people that use illegal drugs and this is something that's happened you know drug use is is part of human history it's it's happened all over the world it's a very natural normal thing to do um so there's a lot of people that use drugs and then there's people that would self-identify as having problems with their drugs um and often like the folks that we see in my program that are saying you know i'm, I'm having some issues around my substance use it's largely related to traumas and um, either past or ongoing traumas or other major life stressors and that drug may be the only thing that's helping that person to cope with an otherwise unbearable situation but then yeah that's you know uh when somebody doesn't have a, a place to live they don't know where they're sleeping that night they don't know where their next meal's coming from, um, there's risk of violence happening to them, there's all these perpetual stressors, and the only relief that they may get all day is from is from using. And uh, not that's not to say that, like, obviously not all people who are without uh, housing are, are using substances, but the ones that are, you know, that, that can be like a, a coping mechanism, a way of socializing, a way of connecting with with other people, a social identity. Uh, for some people, you know, there could be religious things involved. It could be that they've been prescribed something for pain that they're, you know, have realized, oh, you know, it's helping my back pain or my knee pain, but it's also making me feel a little better about my crappy situation. There's, yeah, it's a very complicated thing. I mean, obviously, each unique individual is going to have their own reasons and their own story. But I think, yeah, there's these structural factors that contribute to, I think, the problems that we see occurring with substance use and, and, and its relationship to homelessness. And in the latest sort of Peel data, one in six were folks who were homeless. So in, in 2019, it was 12% of the total number of deaths were folks who were homeless. In 2020, it was 18%. And in 2021, it was 9%. Um, and we don't have the uh, full figures for this past year, just because there's a, a lag with um, information coming back from the, the coroner's office to confirm deaths. To counterpoint that, though, the, the vast majority of deaths that we've seen from overdose have been people um, in private dwelling places, 78%, 73 and 67% for 2019, 2020, and 20. 21. So the vast majority are happening, you know, people that are alone uh, in a dwelling place is, yeah, who we're predominantly seeing. With employment status, this past year, 55% of uh, the folks who, who died from overdose were unemployed. So I, I think these things speak to those, you know, those added stressors for sure. 
Before we get back to learning about harm reduction with Adam, I wanted to take a moment to touch base with you, the listener. If you're interested in joining the conversation, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube so we can hear your thoughts on today's episode and you can let us know what you want to see in the future. I also wanted to let you know about some of Rest Center services for BIPOC youth in Peel. Rest provides a wide variety of services that center around shelter, living, healing, and growing. Our biggest flagship program is the Bridge of Hope, a socially innovative approach to preventing youth homelessness. In collaboration with our bridge builders, the landlords we work with to house and build the capacity for youth to live independently, the Bridge of Hope program provides youth with a sense of belonging that can only be found in a stable home. We are always looking for new bridge builders, so if you have extra space for rent and are interested in housing youth in need, or if you want to otherwise volunteer with Rest Centers, send an email to info at restcenters.org. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-S-T-C-E-N-T-R-E-S dot org to learn how you can get involved. In addition to volunteer membership, Rest Centers is able to support Youth in Peel through the generous donations of the community. When you donate to Rest Centers, you help us provide rental subsidies to secure affordable housing for youth, provide grocery cards to reduce food insecurity, and provide life skill training to increase the youth's capacity to live independently. Your donation additionally supports youth access to counseling, tenant education, financial literacy training, home economics training, and mentor and employment opportunities. If you want to support Rest Centers with a financial donation, please see the link in the bio for more details. Lastly, I'm grateful and excited to announce that the Peel Alliance to End Homelessness, a collaborative of agencies across the region of Peel working together to end homelessness, has become an official sponsor of Homelessness in Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks. Thank you to the Peel Alliance for your continued support of the Rest podcast. If you want to stay in the loop about what REST is doing to help our community shelter dignity and support youth experiencing homelessness, you can get to know us on LinkedIn or subscribe to the REST Center's newsletter for updates. And most importantly, if you are a youth in Peel experiencing or are at risk of experiencing homelessness, we are here to help. Give us a call at 905-863-1118 to get in touch. Now, back to the episode. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm nodding behind the scenes, but I'm like, (laughs) this isn't coming through. I'm just, honestly, everything you've highlighted from personal stressors, from previous injuries that you were medicated for, drug use is such an intricate issue that so many people in our society are quick to stigmatize because they personally don't understand um, how someone could possibly go down that path or how someone could possibly do that. Like, you know, especially in school, like say like elementary school, middle school, high school, it's kind of drilled into children that to kind of oversimplify the lesson, drug use is bad. That's kind of what we hear a lot of. So then there's especially a lot of stigma that we kind of are fostering from a really young age in people. But then something that I've seen a lot of other guests echo on the podcast and is something that I really try to echo in my day-to-day life is that you never know until you're there. You never know until you're there because I forget who exactly it was who said it. I want to say it was, I want to get the name right. I want to say it was Kimone Rodney from Homeless Health Peel, uh, episode five of the podcast, if anyone's interested. But essentially, I believe it was her who said, anyone can make that one bad decision on that one bad day that changes their life forever. And I feel like that's almost exactly what you've just spoken to in the sense of, you truly, you just, you never know how you will personally react to something or how something that kind of is out of your control, like say a workplace injury that you have to be medicated for to heal. You never know how you're going to react to that. You never know what's going to kind of come into play. And I personally 
want more people to understand that factor. So I really appreciate how well you've just broken down every single thing that could influence someone's story. Yeah. And I think, like I said, I mean, people changing the way they feel through various means is a perfectly normal, natural thing, right? Like people go on roller coasters because they want to feel that way, right? They, they want to have that feeling, that rush. Uh, people watch scary movies um, for the same reason people watch comedies to feel happy and good. And uh, people drink coffee because it helps wake them up in the morning. And, um, you know, we'll have a glass of wine with dinner or, or have a couple of beers on the weekend or something. And that's the thing is most, with any drug, legal or illegal, most people, most of the people using them, it's, it's a sort of a casual thing and there's not really any major issues. Um, and I think it's, it's about distinguishing the fact that it's drug use, isn't a moral situation. It's not right or wrong in a moral sense. It's something that's totally natural for human beings to do, but because when you have unregulated, um, drug supplies, uh, where people don't know what's in it, there's there's risks associated with that which is different than something being morally wrong and often you know what we hear from people is well why would someone take that risk when they know it's so dangerous but we take risks all the time right so you know uh, car accidents used to be the leading cause of accidental death uh, which was overtaken by overdose deaths um, in the last number of years um, but you know people get into cars to commute to work to go to the grocery store like we we engage in risky behaviors all the time. They're just not stigmatized. If someone breaks their leg uh, snowboarding, we don't stigmatize that person and say, well, you shouldn't have been doing that. It's dangerous. We, we help the person, right? We treat their leg. Um, but for some reason, uh, we, we take this sort of moral high ground when it comes to, um, when it comes to drug use. And I think, you know, harm reduction is is the same for substance use as we apply to any other number of risky activities so you know when it comes to driving you know seat belts were invented we've we've attempted to make cars uh safer in a lot of ways um you're supposed to take like driving lessons to make sure you know how to use that vehicle as safely as possible there's still risks associated with it but you're you're seeking to minimize some of those those risks and, and reduce the potential for harms to take place. And we do that in all kinds of areas. And we do we can do that with substance use as well, right? Um, we can take something that's risky and try to, uh, that we know people are going to be doing um, and and try to reduce some of those, those risks. That's a really good point to end on, the fact that we take risks every single day, but then we only stigmatize a fraction of those risks. Because like you said, like risk is just a part of life that we kind of accept as a part of life. That that does that does wonders in terms of recontextualizing the issue for me personally. I'm hopeful that that will help others listening to this as well to see it in a new light. All of that said, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Regent Appeals Comprehensive Opiate Strategy because I understand that you you sit on the strategy, but for those who are listening, I wanted to kind of just break down what that is. The Regan of Peel has a comprehensive opioid strategy that has been in place since 2018. The strategy is designed to address the growing crisis of drug use in the Regan, and it stands on four pillars designed to impact the number of opiate-related deaths in Peel, including Pillar 1, Prevention, so identifying and supporting the implementation of effective strategies to prevent opioid misuse and overdose. Pillar two, which is harm reduction, and we will discuss more of that later in detail. 
but that is to incur access to effective harm reduction strategies for people who misuse opioids. Pillar three, which is treatment, or incurring access to effective addictions and mental health treatment. And pillar four, which is enforcement, identifying and implementing interventions to reduce the burden of illicit opioids. And this is something I personally found interesting. This is the only leg of the strategy to be handled by specifically law enforcement and justice systems, as opposed to, say, public health or the healthcare sector. So my question for you, Adam, is if you could break down the importance of these pillars in the fight against the opioid crisis in Peel. Yeah, so uh, the pillar the pillar approach, it's been modeled after, like I guess, original drug strategies that started up across the country. And so that that sort of four pillar model has been largely sort of replicated. Um, so, and I, I guess I just want to point out too. So there's the region's opiate strategy, which we're a part of, and then there's the strategy that Moyo uh, is the lead agency for, which is the Peel Integrated Drug Strategy. Um, and the 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 overarching goal has been because they sort of developed um, in parallel at the same time, has been to merge those two things into a into a larger comprehensive strategy. So the opiate strategy is, yes, looking specifically at opiates. Um, PIDS is obviously also looking at opiates, but um, other drugs as well. And um, we're, we're looking to sort of merge those strategies. In the PIDS strategy or the Peel Integrated Drug Strategy, we didn't really go with the pillar approach as much as we've developed working groups based on the recommendations that came out of um, the community consultation report that we did last year. Um, so each working group is made up of various service providers and people with lived experience to sort of tackle how do we implement some of these these recommendations that came out of the report. In terms of the opiate strategy, so yeah, the pillars were sort of their own distinct work, but there was still that overarching sort of steering body that's aware of all of those things. A lot of the public health resources had to be shifted, obviously, over to COVID response. Um, so a lot of the people that, for example, were leading that strategy uh, at the region had to get redirected towards COVID response. But what the focus has been over the last number of years is more on the harm reduction pillar, um, just because of the, you know, the nature of the drug poisoning crisis, you know, looking at prevention and some of these other other pillars went through other channels. So, you know, in both our strategy and the region strategy, housing and in terms of prevention and stuff like that, housing was one of the major issues that keeps coming up. And so like the region has a housing strategy that's looking to work on those specific issues. Like Moyo sits on the uh, Peel Alliance to End Homelessness to try to address some of those issues. And there's other tables and, and things that the region's involved with to, towards some of those other pillar ends. You know, there's still talk happening around uh, with the police, uh, with uh, public prosecutors. Some of that work has continued through other means. But the I guess the real focus for the last few years for both ourselves and, and the region's opiate strategy is around, you know, increasing access to um, to harm reduction services and uh, some of those being, you know, the need for safe consumption services in the region. So there's a, um, 
a planning and implementation group uh, made up of different service providers and stakeholders and people with lived experience that's looking at how we can get safe consumption services into the region. You know, we're looking at the idea of, of safe supply programs, looking at policies around criminalization and decriminalization. There's different networks of people who work with people who use drugs, um, like the Peel Harm Reduction Committee uh, that we also uh, chair in conjunction with PIDs and the Opiate Strategy that are trying to sort of formalize some of those collaborative processes um, around how we can collectively address those issues, constantly sort of looking and advocating for more funding and resources to be brought into the region. Because I mean, one of the major issues is that Peel is a massive, massive region. um, And it doesn't get the same kind of provincial or federal funding that, you know, somewhere like Toronto gets. And so there's really like not the number of resources or agencies truly needed to actually serve or sorry, there to truly serve the needs of the of the population. So I think, you know, the, you know, we, we've been working very closely with public health and the opiate strategy and with, you know, with our partners in the, in the Peel integrated drug strategy to sort of look at what we can do with the resources we have, and then identify like what some of those gaps are in resources that we need to maybe advocate for or seek further funding for. And like some of those things are just quick wins. They could be things of just figuring out how we could just do something slightly differently without extra resources. And as I mentioned before, all of that's happening in consultation with um, people who use drugs to make sure that we're getting input and feedback from those folks in how this work's done. And and that Peel Drug Users Advisory Panel uh, historically has been working with both the opiate strategy and the Peel Integrated Drug Strategy to inform both pieces of work. And like I said, it's the the ultimate goal is to merge those two pieces of of work. I think what what you said about gaps and working together to fill in the gaps and dictating among the collective who is best fit to fill those gaps. I think that's also kind of what I was wondering as well in terms of strengthening the overall response. I wanted to ask one final question that can lead into breaking down the basics of harm reduction. As Moyo is a service provider to those living with HIV AIDS, I wanted to know what connects drug use to HIV AIDS to the point that these sort of programs exist. The history of what we now call harm reduction is directly rooted in the uh in the HIV epidemic and the HIV advocacy and, and movements that have been happening for decades. So there's always been, like I mentioned before, things that people do to like reduce reduce risks um, or things that now would be called harm reduction. So for example, like methadone programs have existed since I believe the 40s or 50s. Now we would call that like a harm reduction option, but it wouldn't have had that terminology before. So harm reduction's connection to HIV, back when HIV first sort of emerged in the the early 80s, at first it was thought to just be a virus that was being spread amongst gay men. And it was quickly realized that, you know, although that population was being, you know, impacted the most, people who inject drugs were were also really, really prone to HIV and, and, and that were contracting it in large, large numbers. And again, this speaks again to criminalization of substance use. At the time, there was no needle exchange programs. People weren't able to get unused supplies. And if someone 
you know, had to go into, say, a pharmacy and buy needles, and they looked a certain way, they could have the cops called on them. And it was so it was like a huge risk to somebody's well being just to even get uh, access to unused needles. So people were forced to share to share needles. And at the time, too, people didn't necessarily understand how HIV was being spread. So this obviously led to like much higher numbers of people who inject drugs contracting HIV and Hep C. And at first, community organizations that were working with people who use drugs um, and drug users themselves were trying to advocate to the governments that we need access to to needles, to condoms, to to these other things. And governments were like, no, no way. This is you know, this is promoting drug use. We're not going to have anything to do with that. And so harm reduction actually started out as an act of civil disobedience. Uh, outreach workers and, and people who use drugs basically went out and just started distributing these things to people and educating people on HIV prevention, um, on how to use, you know, why they should be not sharing needles, using condoms. Um, all of that sort of stuff. And, and people were actually arrested for doing this. The first sanctioned needle exchange programs were in uh, the Netherlands and uh, Scotland. And I guess once data started coming back from those programs showing that the new infection rates amongst substance users or injection drug users was going down since the introduction of needle exchange programs, that gave some weight to be able to advocate for these programs to be developed in, in North America. And then and we, you know, finally start to see needle exchange programs popping up. So there was that practical piece of of just HIV prevention and Hep C prevention through access to unused needles and sexual health supplies. But also, you know, at the time, the only forms of support that people were able to get around their substance use was completely abstinence based. And if you weren't willing to like quit and stop right then and there, then you didn't have access or people were being denied access to other services if they were known substance users. Um, people were told, I can't give you trauma counseling unless you quit using because it's not going to be effective. I can't house you. You're not allowed to stay in the hospital. Like people who were HIV positive <clears throat> were being kicked out of hospitals in the early days. Um, and then, you know, speaking to intersectionality. So like if you were HIV positive, a substance user, a person of color, and and queer, um, you have these three stigmatized intersecting identities that were impacting your ability to access different forms of healthcare and service. And so harm reduction, you know, emerges as both a practical thing in terms of supply distribution, but then as a philosophy and a way of working with people more broadly to come from the perspective of like accepting that people use drugs that it's not a moral thing it's a health situation and we need to deal with it from the lens of health and not morality that substance users um, should uh, have the exact same rights as any other citizen and should have the same access to healthcare supports housing supports employment like all the other things that anyone else would have access to so advocating for that and, and then being able to work with people around their substance use who are still going to actively use that that quitting is not the purpose of harm reduction um that can be someone's goal. You're basically working with someone. If you're working with someone from a harm reduction perspective, you're you're respecting that individual's right to make choices for their own life as they see it and and working with them on their own goals. So their goals may not include uh, quitting using, 
But what you can do is work with that person around, okay, if you're using, then this is how you can potentially avoid some of the risks um, or mitigate some of the risks associated with what you're doing. And in the meantime, you know, what other, what, you know, are there any other things that you need support with or want to work on that have nothing to do with your substance use? Um, basically, yeah, it's, it's just truly trying to meet people where they're at. And I also need to say that like, yeah, harm reduction has always been rooted in and was started by people who use drugs. Like a lot of the interventions, a lot of the techniques that we use come from people who use drugs. I think good harm reduction programs are ones that employ people who, who use drugs to you know, design and deliver those services. We try to do that as much as possible in, in my program. Um, that our staff is reflective and I, and, and with Moyo, I think, you know, the other populations that we serve, uh, at our agency, like we try to make sure that as best as possible, that staff are reflective of the, the communities that they're serving and that belong to those, those communities. Thank you for that. I want to applaud the focus that Moyo has and that you personally have in terms of getting people involved who, like I've said before, are kind of in the thick of it. Um, Because I think they're the most qualified to inform these kinds of strategies. And I like also what you said about the point of giving people their agency back and not really invalidating people for the decisions that they've made previously, like helping them reach their goals at their own pace, if that makes sense. Very much just saying, well, we want to make what you're doing a little bit safer for you because we understand that you're not at a place where you can, you know, go forward with quitting or re- with reducing anything. Um, we understand that. We want to help you. We want to help you with this. And we're going to help you in the way that you want to be helped. But then we're also going to help you with other things. So then I, I also see that in terms of kind of removing the label of someone who uses drugs away from them, not necessarily removing, but kind of letting it stay with other things, if that makes any sense at all. It's a way of not letting someone's experience with drug use define them. And I think that's something we see in a lot of other spheres. Like, you know, as a black woman, like I don't really have necessarily, like there's this, there's this kind of idea in the concept of intersectionality of, you know, becoming, I guess, like the token of something when you speak out about it. So for me, if I ever say anything about anything, it's always going to be through the lens of as a black woman, um, just as someone who, you know, maybe queer identifying, like, let's say, um, like lesbian, for example, you know, it's always going to be viewed through the lens of, well, as a lesbian, um, same with straight people as well, like as a straight person, not everyone has the experience, or rather the luxury of individuality in our society. And I think that this approach, you know, with harm reduction, in respect to individuals who use drugs, I think it's the same kind of issue. They don't really have that individuality anymore the second that someone learns that they have been using drugs. So that's kind of what I'm taking away from harm reduction. And that's something I'm personally very grateful for. Yeah, it's basically saying, yeah, that there's, you know, it's not a moral thing. There's nothing wrong with being a drug user because most people are. <laughs> most people use something, right? Um, that's not a problem. And you're not being judged here when you access services for that. And like, it's not my place as a service provider to tell somebody what their goals should be for themselves. They That person can tell us what 
what their goals are and, and how they want to be supported in, in that, if at all, right? And it's just really respecting someone's individual agency and, and then just being there to try to help support that person in, in whatever way that they're ask, asking for support. In the discussion of harm reduction as well, I want to know, as someone who is providing harm production or harm reduction services, rather, how does harm reduction additionally help individuals experiencing homelessness in recovering? What gaps in support might harm reduction programs fill for these people, or sorry, that house people who use drugs might have an easier time accessing? Yeah, and like I guess, yeah, with your... In- with your question, you asked about recovery. So I guess, yeah, recovery, the concept of recovery is sort of a, a bit of a loaded word because it's it's coming from a perspective of, of I guess, how substance use is, is viewed and, and what it means and then what it means when somebody has, has quit um, and are in your quotes recovery and and nothing against that um that's just you know and like i said like harm reduction for example isn't anti-abstinence um uh, or anti-recovery but it's not a requirement right it's um if that's where that person's at or how they're identifying where they are or what they want then you know um if they wanted to go through say a recovery-based program, we would help connect them to one or it or an abstinence-based treatment inpatient or outpatient treatment service. We would we would um work with them on that. In terms of like I guess outcomes, um harm reduction has different, I guess like a different set of goals, right? So success would be I guess a little harder to quantify if your only goal, if you're if you're in say an abstinence-based approach, your only goal is that that person um, has stopped using drugs and and you would measure that by did this person stop using how long have they stopped using and it's a very narrow goal with a very narrow set of criteria um, for success where with harm reduction that's not the case so it's not there aren't there aren't necessarily those like rigid overarching goals like i mentioned before it's about working with folks around what their own goals are so success can look like any number of things like success could be that somebody now has access to uh supplies that now they don't have to share drug using equipment and and be at risk for hiv and hep c um, which is going to complicate their lives uh much more and impact their health their goal may be, you know, to access some other service, their goal may be to, you know, slowly reduce their use, their goal may be to just manage their use a little better, their goal may be to quit, their goal may be to go back to school or or get a job or work in a as a peer, or, you know, any number of, of, uh, of things. So it the goals in terms of like working with somebody or the success, I guess, would be so individually based from that sort of client facing perspective. And then I think there's like overarching more policy goals that harm reduction as a whole uh, is, is looking at. So, you know, looking at changing policies around things like criminalizing drug use. I think most harm reduction based agencies or organizations would be in favor of, of decriminalizing substance use and, and substance users. 
uh, would be in favor of people having access to various forms of healthcare and safe, you know, safe places for people to use, uh, safe supplies of drugs for people to use that aren't coming from, you know, unregulated criminal supplies. And when I say criminal, I mean, like cartels and, and where, where drugs are being produced. So I think there's overarching goals there. But yeah, success, I guess the, one of the hard parts is, as I mentioned before, th- one of the overarching issues is poverty and all of these other associated things that intersect with substance use. Um, and so some of these you know, goals or successes are hard to reach because of other societal factors, right? And at a certain point, if you've ever done like client-facing work, you realize whatever mandate your agency or organization that you work for has, at a certain point, you're going you're gonna to hit a wall when you get to certain larger systems. Like getting somebody housed, right, is a prime example. Like we have a situation where housing prices have gone through the roof, which is attached to larger mechanisms within the economy, which then affects rent prices and like what, for example, funded resources can afford if housing prices double and your budget for affordable housing at a regional level or a provincial level is X amount of dollars, that's just cut you know, that raise in housing prices has cut your ability to buy more housing or it, 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 there's all of these other factors, I think, that, that come into play that, that really hinder some of the larger successes that we, we hope to see. And, and unfortunately, we end up seeing, you know, people recycling through the shelter system in and out of homelessness because there aren't there aren't all of the things needed to truly change those things on a larger scale. And in the meantime, what harm reduction is trying to do is keep someone alive and healthy um, to be able to do that, right? I, I know there's a lot of talk from the public or, or certain politicians around, you know, oh, well, we, we, we don't need to increase harm reduction services, we just need to increase access to treatment services or whatever. But if someone's dead, they can't access other healthcare services, right? So we need to first make sure that people are alive to be able to do anything further with that person. So yeah, one of our primary goals is keeping people alive uh, right now um, so that any of their other goals can be worked on. That makes sense. That's actually a really good way to, I think, cap it off, actually. Um, The goal of harm reduction is to keep someone alive long enough so that they can access additional resources when they are ready. If that's their goal. Yeah, yeah. no, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's, whenever we're talking about social issues, it's, it's they're all intersecting with these various webs from the individual all the way out to the global. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it does, it makes it very hard and complicated. But yeah, harm reduction, harm reduction is just, yeah, seeking to work with people on their own goals, reducing risks and, and potential harms while we're trying to make larger changes in society that would reduce some of those harms or risk factors in the first place from even existing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're right. It's a very complex issue. So I think what I want to do before I let you go is to ask the question I ask all of my guests, because I think now more than ever, honestly, it's a very good question to ask. I guess to kind of boil it down for someone who may be feeling a little helpless in the situation, where do you want this discussion to go? 
What should I and our listeners tackle first? What can we do? Well, I think I think one of the biggest things that's needed is that people need to change the way that they are looking at others. We need to change the narrative around, you know, substance use, around the people who use substances from being one of stigmatizing and criminalizing and you know, and seeing this as someone's personal shortcoming that I I don't need to care about to recognizing that like, these are all issues that are, are interrelated with all other other aspects of society and that people who use drugs are part of your community, part of your workspaces, part of your families, you know, and if we can change the way people think about these things, that, you know, a lot of politicians, for example, it's hard it's hard for certain political actors to back, you know, certain initiatives that are being suggested through evidence-based research and, and community research because they're not politically viable in terms of them getting reelected because their constituents are going to say, well, I don't care about drug users. Um, I don't want you doing this, so I'm not going to vote for you. So it makes it hard for politicians to back some of these things and, and implement certain things. So I think if the general public is able to sort of change the way that they see these things, that's going to really, really help it be easier for some of these larger structural issues to be tackled. My goal for the public would, yeah, like I said, just that education piece of thinking about things differently, thinking about people who were homeless differently, um, that it's not a personal, a personal fault and that like we, you know, we truly don't know what it is to walk in somebody else's shoes. And, you know, empathy is is the attempt as best as possible to try to do that, right? We can't achieve it perfectly. You can't, you can't know what it is to be somebody else, but you can try, you can try instead of judging somebody, you can try to, to ask why might this person be in this situation and what, what factors outside of that person's control would have potentially contributed to this and, and try to put yourself in someone else's shoes for, for a moment. And I think that will hopefully open up the doors for, for further conversations to happen um, at larger levels. Harm reduction is not about recovery, but about meeting someone where they are at in their personal journey with substance use. The Peel Comprehensive Opioid Strategy and the Peel Integrated Drug Strategy exist not to force recovery onto people or else face consequences, but to make access to recovery options easier, should people want to seek those options. The point of harm reduction is to keep someone alive and healthy long enough to access additional resources both related and unrelated to substance use. Most importantly, people who use drugs are just the same as any of us, with goals and needs and emotions and human rights. If we as people want individuality and agency away from our identities and labels, and if we deserve these things, then people who use drugs deserve just as much destigmatization and decriminalization as the rest of us. This wraps up this episode of Homelessness and Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks. If you want to follow up with Moyo Health and Community Services, all of their social media are in the description, and you can visit their website, moyohcs.ca. That's M-O-Y-O-H-C-S dot C-A for more information. If you're interested in supporting a cause tackling youth homelessness, I invite you to visit our website, restcenters.org. That's R-E-S-T-C-E-N-T-R-E-S dot org to learn more about our mission and how you can support the cause. 
If you found solace here, learned something new, or think we have something of value to offer, you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Maya Moniz, signing off. This podcast has been brought to you by the Rest Centers. Through the special dedication of our coordinator, Maya Moniz, our assistant researcher, Chelsea McLaughlin, our director of youth engagement, Romaine Redman, and Rest's executive director and founder, Dag McCoy. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are exclusively those of the hosts and guests involved and have no affiliation with the Restoration and Empowerment for Social Transition Center.